Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. is Democracy Now! And so people in southwest Florida, uh, this is uh, going to likely make landfall as a Category 4 hurricane. Uh, There will be uh, catastrophic flooding and life-threatening storm surge on the Gulf Coast region. Hurricane Ian strengthens into a devastating Category 4 storm as it approaches Florida. More than 2.5 million people in Florida have been ordered to evacuate. We'll get an update from WNMF Community Radio in Tampa. Then score it a win, says climate activist Bill McKibben. Senator Joe Manchin's big oil gift is scuttled for now as he abandons his proposal to speed up the federal review of energy projects like the Mountain Valley Pipeline. We'll speak with McKibben and climate scientist Peter Kalmus, who was arrested for chaining himself to a J.P. Morgan bank to protest fossil fuel investments and climate inaction. He tweeted, it's great that NASA is testing the ability to deflect an asteroid or comet if necessary, but the actual clear and present danger to humanity is, of course, Earth breakdown from burning fossil fuels. Hashtag don't look up. Kalmus tweeted. Then Lady Justice, women the law in battle to save America. I think this verdict today is a message that this country does not tolerate violence based on racial and religious hatred in any form. We'll speak with Slate's Dahlia Lithwick about her new book, Profiling Women Like Attorney Roberta Kaplan, who beat the Charlottesville Nazis in court, who fought the racism, sexism, and xenophobia of Trump's presidency, and won. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. More than two and a half million people in Florida have been ordered to evacuate as Hurricane Ian strengthens into a Category 4 storm, with winds reaching 155 miles per hour, just shy of a Category 5. The storm's projected to make landfall this afternoon dozens of miles south of Tampa Bay, but parts of the state are already facing heavy wind and flooding. On Tuesday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis urged residents to follow evacuation orders. There will be uh, catastrophic flooding and life-threatening storm surge on the Gulf Coast region. And, of course, the highest risk will be in that southwest Florida region from Naples uh, up to Sarasota. There's also potential for flash flooding and river flooding uh, with 10 to 20 inches, uh, inches across central and northeast Florida. Hurricane Ian has already devastated Cuba. The storm knocked out power to the entire country and killed at least two people. Western Cuba suffered substantial damage. This is Abe Hernandez, a tobacco grower in Cuba. It was disastrous. It was never seen this way before. Sometimes hurricanes pass through here, but not of this magnitude. It destroyed our houses, our tobacco drying huts, our farms, the trees, everything. 
This all comes as about a third of Puerto Rico remains without power 10 days after Hurricane Fiona hit the island. The European Union says damage to two major gas pipelines connecting Russia to Europe was caused by sabotage. Leaks were discovered on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines after the line sustained what has been described as unprecedented damage in three sections. Seismologists in Sweden say they've detected two explosions in the area that might have caused the damage. On Tuesday, the Polish prime minister, Zbigniew Rao, suggested Russia may have attacked the pipeline. We are not in a position to reject the notion that this could be an element of Russian hybrid war against NATO. Meanwhile, Poland's former foreign minister, Radek Sikorski, appeared to suggest the United States could have been involved. He posted a picture on Twitter of a water disturbance near the site of the leaks with a message that read, Thank you, USA. Authorities in four Russian-occupied areas of Ukraine claim residents have overwhelmingly voted to support becoming part of Russia, paving the way for Moscow to annex the areas. The United States and its allies denounced the votes as sham referenda. This is Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky speaking last night. The crime of aggression against our country, the farce and occupied territories, which is called a referendum by occupiers, the preparation of a new attempt at the annexation of Ukrainian territory, these are all steps by which Russia finishes off the UN Charter. The Associated Press reports nearly 200,000 Russians have fled to Georgia, Kazakhstan and Finland since Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a partial mobilization to draft at least 300,000 to fight in Ukraine. Traffic jams heading into Georgia have been up to 10 miles long. One Russian man spoke to Reuters after crossing into the country of Georgia with his children. People who are against the regime, who are not ready to go to war, I mean, they are ready to fight if there is a war for truth, a fair war. When you are defending your home, it is fair. You go and you are not afraid. And when you go to fight in a stupid war, to kill your brother, it is a war about nothing. And that's why people are leaving. The king of Saudi Arabia has named Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to be prime minister, making him the official head of the Saudi government. Up until now, the king held the position of prime minister. Sarah Lee Whitson, the head of Dawn, said on Tuesday, quote, there is one reason and only one reason MBS has now added prime minister to his many unearned titles, a desperate gambit for immunity in the lawsuit we've brought for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, as well as other lawsuits for his many crimes, she said. Jury selections begun for the trial of Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and four other members of the far-right group. They're charged with seditious conspiracy for plotting to block Congress from certifying the results of the 2020 election, January 6, 2021. Meanwhile, a supporter of Donald Trump from Iowa named Kyle Young has been sentenced to more than seven years in prison for assaulting Washington, D.C. police officer Mike Fanon during the January 6th insurrection. In related news, the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol has postponed its public hearing scheduled for today due to the hurricane in Florida. 
In other news from Capitol Hill, Senator Joe Manchin's abandoned, at least for now, his proposal to speed up the federal review of energy projects. Manchin wanted to shorten public comment periods on proposed fossil fuel projects while weakening environmental public health laws. On Tuesday, Manchin requested the proposal by remo be removed from a stopgap funding bill after it became clear it didn't have enough votes to pass. Man to pass. Manchin's proposal had faced fierce opposition from climate justice groups. Food and Water Watch executive director Winona Howder said, quote, tonight's turnaround represents a remarkable against all odds victory by a determined grassroots climate movement against the overwhelming financial and political might of the fossil fuel industry and its Senate enablers. We'll have more on the Mountain Valley pipeline and more after headlines. In Pennsylvania, Republican gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano's views on abortion are in the spotlight after NBC unearthed the 2019 interview where he said women who violated abortion bans should be charged with murder. His comments came during an interview with the radio station WITF. And again, you can give me a yes or no on this. Would that woman who decided to have an abortion, which would be considered an illegal abortion, be charged with murder? Okay, let's go back to the basic question there. Is that a human being? Is that a little boy or girl? If it is, it deserves equal protection on the law. So you're saying yes? Yes, I am. In Virginia, thousands of students walked out of middle and high schools Tuesday to protest Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin's plan to roll back the rights of trans students. Walkouts were reported in over 100 schools, with many students chanting, trans rights are human rights and DOE let us be. Under Governor Youngkin's plan, schools would be required to categorize students based on their assigned sex at birth and bar students from changing their name or pronouns at school without a court order. Walkout participants included 17-year-old Casey Clavia, a non-binary senior in high school who criticized Governor Youngkin's policies. I would tell him he is not protecting anyone. He's not protecting parents' rights. He's not protecting trans students. All his talk of, oh, these big progressives in Fairfax are progressives that are standing up for kids like me. I am scared of this man. My friends are scared of this man. How can he stand there and say that he loves his country and this state if he wants to hurt us? California Governor Gavin Newsom had signed a bill outlawing what's known as the pink tax. The new law bars companies from charging different prices for products marketed for women. Newsom also signed 13 abortion protection and reproductive health bills Tuesday, as well as legislation aimed to better identify gender and race-based pay disparities. The International Monetary Fund has issued a rare warning to Britain over its plans to cut taxes. The IMF said the move by Prime Minister Liz Truss's new government could fuel inflation and increase economic inequality. On Monday, the British pound fell to a record low against the U.S. dollar. And longtime feminist, socialist and author, activist Meredith Tax has died at the age of 80. She helped found a number of organizations, including the Pan American Center Women's Committee, the Committee for Abortion Rights and Against Sterilization Abuse, and the Women's World Organization for Rights, Literature and Democracy. Her books included the novels Rivington Street and Union Square. She also wrote about the role of Kurdish women in her book, A Road Unforeseen, Women Fight the Islamic State. She once wrote, men are taught to be active, to go 
go and seek what they need, not to look pretty and wait for it to come into their vicinity. Men don't observe each passing cloud over human relations as if their whole future depended on it. There's a reason for that. It doesn't. Women are hyper-aware of their surroundings. They have to be. Walk down a street without being tuned in, and you're in real danger. Our society is one in which men rape, mug, and murder women whom they don't know every day. The words of Meredith Tax. She died on Sunday at the age of 80. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. More than two and a half million people in Florida have been ordered to evacuate as Hurricane Ian strengthens into a Category 4 storm. The storm already lashing the Florida southern tip projected to make landfall this afternoon dozens of miles south of Tampa Bay. On Tuesday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis urged residents to follow evacuation orders. There will be uh, catastrophic flooding and life-threatening storm surge on the Gulf Coast region. And of course, the highest risk will be in that southwest Florida region from Naples uh, up to Sarasota. There's also potential for flash flooding and river flooding uh, with 10 to 20 inches, uh, inches across central and northeast Florida. Hurricane Ian's approaching Florida after devastating Cuba. The storm knocked out power to the entire country, killed at least two people. Western Cuba suffered substantial damage. This is Abel Hernandez, longtime tobacco grower in Cuba. It was disastrous. It was never seen this way before. Sometimes hurricanes pass through here, but not of this magnitude. It destroyed our houses, our tobacco drying huts, our farms, the trees, everything. This all comes as about a third of Puerto Rico remains without power 10 days after Hurricane Fiona hit the island. As Hurricane Ian approaches possible Category 5 status, we go to Tampa, Florida, where we're joined by Sean Canan. He is News and Public Affairs Director at WMNF Community Radio. Sean, thanks so much for taking a moment to join us on Democracy Now! as you are informing the public in Tampa Bay about the latest news, which is so critical to disseminate that kind of information. Tell us what you know at this point and what's happening. Thank you for having me on, Amy and Juan. Yes, the hurricane is expected to be a Category 4 as it makes landfall south of Tampa, as you mentioned. It was a few days ago that here in the Tampa Bay area, we were very concerned about storm surges of 8 to 10 feet in Tampa Bay, which would have completely inundated most of the low-lying areas of South Tampa and the barrier islands of the Pinellas County beaches. Now it looks like the they have been turned, um, that the... the, the, the Storm has turned a little bit to the right, so we're toward the east, and it's going to make landfall south of the Sarasota uh, area, which is south of Tampa Bay, for those people who aren't familiar with the Florida area. But it will still be a very strong storm. The people in the Sarasota and Lee County areas are expecting very strong conditions, but it's also going to move through the center of the state and cause a lot of rainfall, as Governor DeSantis mentioned in the clip that you played. And we are bracing for winds, rain, and storm surge all through the West Central Florida area. 
And, and Sean, what would it have meant if the storm if the storm uh, made a direct hit on the Tampa area, Tampa, St. Pete? Obviously, St. Pete out even further uh, uh, westward is uh, would be even more exposed. Tampa is considered one of the most vulnerable cities in the world, and in, in terms of storm surges. That's right, Juan. Uh, hurricanes have, of this strength have not hit the Tampa Bay region directly in more than 100 years. And forecasters are saying that when that does happen, when a, when a large storm like Ian hits the Tampa Bay area directly, the most of the region will be really devastated. What could happen in Tampa itself, which is along Tampa Bay, a very shallow bay, and if the wind speed and direction is just right, it'll push water up Tampa Bay and inundate very low-lying areas. Hospitals are there. The downtown city of Tampa is, is right there on the bay. And it would, you know, a 10-foot storm surge would be completely devastating for this region in Tampa. And as you mentioned, in the barrier islands of St. Petersburg, in fact, it's speculated that if a Category 4 or 5 hit Tampa Bay directly, Pinellas County, which is a peninsula, would be essentially cut off into islands. And I, I, live, I would be living on, I would have been living on one of those islands, which is one of the reasons why I evacuated to uh, our radio station here, WMNF, because there would have been no way for me to have gotten off that island if there had been this kind of inundation that luckily in the Tampa Bay area and Pinellas County were not subjected to, we're, we're thinking we won't have but that could happen in southwest Florida. There are Barry Islands along Lee County and along Sarasota County that are certainly uh, right in the path of this hurricane one. And also the landfall is expected now around Fort Myers, uh, but just inland from that is Immokalee, where many migrant farm workers who often live in substandard housing live. Uh, any sense or idea of what uh, those are? Uh, 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 migrant workers uh, might be exposed to what kind of shelter or even support from the state they'd be getting? You know, a lot of the evacuation orders are ordered by zone, which essentially is how close you are to the coast and or to rivers and how low-lying you are. But also those evacuation orders include substandard structures. If you are far inland and even on high ground, you have been asked to evacuate if you live in a mobile home or in a manufactured home or something that might not withstand strong winds. Well, the Immokalee workers, the workers in Immokalee, Florida, are certainly living in those kinds of conditions. Many of them, uh, several families living under one roof, and it might even be a stretch to call it a roof. They, they definitely oftentimes live in substandard housing, which might be completely devastated in a hurricane like this. This harkens back perhaps to Hurricane Andrew in 1992 that came through Homestead, which is in South Florida, a, a large farming area near Miami. And a lot of the farms and the farm workers were really impacted by Hurricane Andrew. I, you know, there's no way to speculate what's going to happen this afternoon, but it's very likely that a lot of the community in Immokalee, a lot of those substandard structures will be probably completely destroyed in a huge hurricane like Hurricane Ian. Sean, we just went—just uh, before we went on the air, I watched DeSantis, the governor, giving a news conference saying, actually, in some areas, are telling people no longer to evacuate, to stay in place. You had officials saying, wear helmets, you know, protect yourself, um, uh, because they were saying it was too late. If you can talk about the significance of that and also of WMNF, uh, I treasure your radio station, a gem of the community radio—in the community radio network around the United States. 
States. Uh, you focus a lot on climate change. I was just watching CNN last night when they asked a guest about the link to climate. And he said, I, I don't want to talk about that right now. Well, Sean, you've always had that front and center in the news at WMNF. Yeah, how can you not talk about climate change right now? And Amy, I want to thank you for your support of community radio WMF over the years, and thank you for saying those nice things. We are trying to keep our audience engaged and informed about this dangerous storm. Uh, so, But turning to climate change, there's so much that can be linked to climate change in this storm. And, you know, meteorologists always say you can't say any one particular thing about a storm is directly related to climate change. But, you know, here's what climate change has done. Climate change has made the waters warmer. And that causes storms to be stronger. Climate change has made more atmospheric moisture, which is that's one of the reasons why there's going to be 24 inches of rain in Orlando this week. And it, also, climate change has made the seas higher, and they're they're keep they're going to be keep getting higher. And what that does is that increases the damage from storm surge. If you have a 10, 10 foot storm surge over today's level of, of climate of, of sea level, that is. Well, that's certainly different than what would have been if the, if, the foot, if the seas were one foot lower. So all of these things are very much impacted by climate dis disruption. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us, uh, Sean Canan. I want you to be able to get back to work. You're on the air nonstop, news and public affairs director, community radio station WMNF, I guess where you're living right now, in Tampa, Florida. Uh, please be safe, and we're going to get back in touch to see how you're doing in the community of Tampa Bay. We're going to break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Bill McKibben, author, educator, environmentalist. Find out why he was protesting the World Bank in Washington, D.C. yesterday, and also deeply concerned about what we're seeing happen throughout the Caribbean into Florida right now. Stay with us. by Yasmin Williams. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. In major news, climate news, actually, from Capitol Hill, Senator Joe Manchin's abandoned, at least for now, his proposal to speed up federal review of energy projects like the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Manchin wanted to shorten public comment periods on proposed fossil fuel projects or weakening environmental and public health laws. His proposal would have nearly guaranteed the approval for the Mountain Valley 
water pipeline in West Virginia. On Tuesday, Manchin requested his proposal be removed from a stopgap funding bill after it became clear it didn't have enough votes to pass. Manchin's proposal had faced fierce opposition from climate justice groups. We're joined right now by Bill McKibben, author, educator, environmentalist, founder of the group Third Act, which organizes people over 60 for progressive change, also founder of 350.org. His new piece, Score to Win, Manchin's Big Oil Gift Basket, scuttled for now. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. You were protesting in Washington, the World Bank. You wrote this piece about this latest news that surprised a lot of people, the scuttling of Manchin's bill. And you're doing this in the buildup to this massive storm hitting Florida. Well, it's, a, Amy, a tremendous reminder of why we have to do this work. Uh, Sean from WMNF did a great job of describing the climate implications of Hurricane Ian. Everyone just needs to remember that the ocean is a foot higher already than it was the last time a major hurricane hit the Tampa area. Uh, our job now is we can't prevent that foot. We've got to keep it from getting much higher still. Yesterday was uh, was a pretty remarkable turn of events. The last few weeks have featured remarkable campaigning led by climate justice frontline uh, uh, groups. So the Climate Justice Alliance, People versus Fossil Fuel, Indigenous Environmental Network. They were backed up by the big green groups, Sierra Club, LCV, League of Conservation Voters, uh, others. And of course, there was tremendous mobilization by people in Appalachia. Uh, power, protect our water heritage and rights, Appalachian Voices, uh, Third Act Virginia, lots of groups that mobilized and scrambled to make the case against that pipeline in particular and against the rest of the giveaways in this bill to the fossil fuel industry. The same sort of thing was mirrored on Capitol Hill. It was stalwart progressives that came out first against this. Bernie, uh, and on the House side, uh, Raul Grijalva, Ro Khanna. Uh, but in the last week or so, they were backed up by uh, others who were somewhat unexpected. And one of the big turning points was when Tim Kaine, the senator from Virginia, came out strongly against including this fossil fuel giveaway in the continuing budget resolution. Uh, Tim Kaine's not a member of the squad. He was Hillary's uh, running mate in 2016. So uh, organizers did a tremendous job in the environmental justice movement of taking this and, and making it an issue that it was hard to avoid. It doesn't mean, as you know, Amy and Juan, all environmental victories are temporary. This one may be more temporary than most. There's already news today that Manchin and the Republicans are going to try and bring it back, attaching it in December, not to the budget, but to the Defense Authorization Act. And, uh, you know, so uh, look, big oil never sleeps and it never gives up. But for a day anyway, an impressive win by uh, grassroots environmentalists. And, Bill, this was uh, surprising because there was supposedly a deal between Manchin and uh, Chuck Schumer in terms of uh, of this uh, the, this uh, permitting uh, uh, expediting permitting processes. What what does this say about uh, Schumer's ability to control his own uh, uh, his own delegation? Well, I don't I mean, I don't know that much about all the inside baseball here. Uh, but I do know that when senators got to look at the thing, they understood 
you know, I mean, it was just hideous deal. It, in essence, said that the federal agencies uh, had to grant permits for this Mountain Valley pipeline, that those permits basically couldn't be challenged in court. If there were going to be new challenges, it directed which court they would go to. They were picking a court they thought would be conservative. I mean, th- this is, I mean, this is the absolute definition of corrupt backroom cronyism. It has nothing to do with policy making in the normal sense of the word. It was Manchin's attempted extortion. He already got a lot of goodies for big oil in the original Inflation Reduction Act. There's wasted money on things like carbon sequestration and things. But not content with that, he tried to go for this gift basket. And at least for the moment, the uh, progressives in the House and Senate have said, no, we're not going to deliver that. So, Bill, you were in Washington, D.C. yesterday, part of a protest outside the World Bank. Can you explain why? Well, the, this is this, this was, I was actually in Washington for two protests yesterday, one up on Capitol Hill about this uh, 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 giveaway to the big oil and the other, yes, outside the World Bank. Uh, there's a broad coalition, again, led by very moderate forces. Al Gore has really been in the lead of it, trying to get the head of the World Bank fired because he's not taking climate change very seriously. In fact, last week in an interview in New York he with the New York Times, he was given six, count them, six opportunities to say that global warming was real, that humans were heating the planet. And he passed on every one of them, finally saying, I'm not a scientist, which is about as tired and lame a dodge as it's possible to imagine. So yesterday morning, a bunch of us showed up at the World Bank and we started reading all morning the actual peer-reviewed science, footnotes and all, out front through a microphone, just so he could hear what scientists think. The idea that you'd need to be a climate scientist in order to take action on any of this is nuts. I mean, you're going to have a bona fide climate scientist, Peter Kalmus, on in a minute. Uh, 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 and I, I think he'll he'll say you don't need a Ph.D. in order to understand what's happening here. We're burning fossil fuel. It puts carbon into the atmosphere. The molecular structure of carbon traps heat that would otherwise radiate back out to space. Period. End of story. And, you know, the end of the story is things like Hurricane Ian. It's things like the epic heat wave that is gripped China all summer. It's things like the completely unheard of flooding in Pakistan right now. We should remember, as we grieve for our brothers and sisters in Florida as this happens, that this kind of stuff's happening absolutely everywhere. 33 million people displaced from their homes in Pakistan. That's everybody from Boston to Baltimore, you know. Um, um, and that's just at any given moment on this earth now. The, uh, the planet's overheating. And we need people like the president of the World Bank who are in positions of serious trust to actually take it seriously. That this guy isn't taking it seriously shouldn't come as a surprise. He was an undersecretary of the Treasury in the Trump administration. Before that, if you look at his biography, it reads chief economist for Bear Stearns in the six years before it went bankrupt. Well, uh, we cannot afford for the planet's climate system to go bankrupt. So we better get somebody else in there who's a little more on the ball. 
And Bill, in terms of uh, taking uh, the issue seriously, how do you assess the uh, 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 the initial years of the Biden administration in terms of uh, of uh, attacking the, cl- the climate crisis head on? Well, I think that they've made a good faith effort, Juan, um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens now. Uh, they were they 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 have been operating with one hand tied behind their back because they desperately needed Manchin's vote to get this what eventually became the Inflation Reduction Act. And that meant they couldn't use executive action uh, without fear of offending him. So after the election, either the Democrats will have no power at all, they'll have lost the Senate and the House, or they'll have picked up, one hopes, a a few senators. In in either of those scenarios, Manchin's leverage is reduced, and hence the president's ability to use executive action uh, uh, should increase some. So we may see a different kind of, we're, we're probably not going to see the big spending bill in the second half of the Biden administration, but we may see uh, pressure for action in other ways from the administration. Bill, we want to thank you for being with us. Bill McKibben, author, educator, environmentalist, founder of the organization Third Act, organizing people over 60 for progressive change, also co-founder of 350.org. We'll link to all your pieces. I know one's coming out today on the storm. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we turn from a climate activist to a climate scientist who is an activist as well. On Monday, NASA successfully crashed a robotic spacecraft into an asteroid in its first-of-its-kind test of technology that could one day perhaps prevent a comet or asteroid from hitting the Earth. Mission engineers at Johns Hopkins University's Applied Physics Laboratory erupted in cheers Monday as the double asteroid redirection test spacecraft, known as DART, live-streamed its final moments plunging toward the asteroid Dimorphos at 14,000 miles per hour. The event was carried live on NASA TV. Oh, wow. Awaiting visual confirmation. Astronomers will observe Dimorphos and the much larger asteroid orbits to see how DART deflected their paths through space. NASA hopes to prove that, given enough warning, it'll be able to nudge an Earth-bound comet or asteroid off course, averting a catastrophe. The Earth is constantly peppered by small meteorites that fall harmlessly over remote areas, but rarely much larger rocks fall on human settlements. In February 15th, 2013, an asteroid the size of a house entered the atmosphere above Chelyabinsk in Russia, a city of more than a million people. The resulting meteor exploded with the force of a nuclear bomb 14 miles above the ground, leaving a brilliant streak of fire across the morning sky. The meteor's shockwave 
Shattered windows, blew doors off hinges, injured more than 1,600 people, mostly from broken glass. No deaths were reported. NASA hopes to one day be able to prevent a similar or much worse disaster, although the odds of a catastrophic impact remain vanishingly small. As the DART mission draws the world's attention to threats from outer space, NASA scientists continue to warn about threats right here on Earth. Peter Kalmus, a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, tweeted, It's great that NASA is testing the ability to deflect an asteroid or a comet if necessary. But the actual clear and present danger to humanity is, of course, Earth breakdown from burning fossil fuels. Hashtag don't look up. Unquote. Well, for more, Peter Kalmus joins us from Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to Democracy Now! Peter, we realize you're strictly speaking on your own behalf, not in a professional capacity. It's great to have you with us. Uh, you've been arrested protesting. So make the links to what the world was watching around this dart-hitting uh, asteroid um, and what you feel we should be focusing on. Yeah, Amy. Well, you know, I've I'm a space nerd. I loved science fiction when I was a kid. Um, I love what NASA does, and this mission was a technological uh, tour de force. I mean, it was just amazing what they did. Um, it just for me, it felt kind of like what you could call a "don't look up" moment. You know, um, uh, we we're we, we're such an incredible species. We can do these amazing things. We can redirect asteroids. We can, you know, get prepared for uh, potential uh, you know, asteroid that could take out a city. Uh, you know, those those might come to Earth around one. Uh, per thousand years or so. So it's not a bad thing to be prepared for that. But it just feels so weird to me as a climate scientist uh, that we, we can do all this amazing stuff, and yet we're still careening headlong into climate catastrophe. And I keep yelling at the top of my lungs. I'm risking arrest. I'm, I've, I've been forced to become a, uh, a climate activist because I've got two kids. I, you know, I'm terrified of the inaction of world leaders uh, who keep dancing around the real issue, right, which is we have to rapidly ramp down the fossil fuel industry. That's what's causing this. And yet they keep wanting to expand the fossil fuel industry. So it's just, it's, it's a bittersweet thing. We're finding exoplanets. We're doing these amazing missions like redirecting ast uh, asteroids. And yet with all that technology, with all that knowledge, somehow it's not translating into stopping what is clearly the biggest threat facing humanity, which is uh, global heating. Well, uh, Peter, in April, you were arrested for chaining yourself to a J.P. Morgan uh, bank in Los Angeles, California, to protest fossil fuel investments and climate inaction. Uh, Juan, explain we what actually happened. have the clip of that moment. Let's go to it. So I'm here because scientists are not being listened to. I'm willing to take a risk for this gorgeous planet. <laughs> My sons. And we've been trying to warn you guys for so many decades that we're heading towards a catastrophe. And we've been being ignored. The scientists in the world have been being ignored. And it's got to stop. We're going to lose everything. We have to stop this fossil fuel industry. We have to stop the financing of fossil fuels. We have to stop new fossil fuel projects. You in, uh, in April, could you explain what happened uh, after that? And also, what's been the reaction within uh, your NASA by your colleagues to your activism? 
Yeah, so on April 4th, the IPCC released its Working Group 3 report, which said the very obvious, which is that this is caused by the fossil fuel industry and that we have to stop expanding the fossil fuel industry. And yet, world leaders, including this administration, keep calling for expansion of the fossil fuel industry. Uh, Joe Manchin, Chuck Schumer, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, you know, they both received about $300,000 this election cycle uh, to fund that pipeline. So there's huge pressure. Uh, there's corruption from the fossil fuel industry controlling politicians with basically legalized bribery um, to expand the fossil fuel industry, which is taking us completely in the wrong direction. And the science is so clear, right? 80% of global heating is caused by burning fossil fuel most of the rest uh, is animal agriculture. We have to stop that. Other, otherwise, all of the things that we're seeing, the, the hurricanes, the fires, the flooding, um, heat waves, uh, increasingly uh, crop yield losses and declines and increasing food prices, which we're, I mean, this, none of this will stop until we ramp down the fossil fuel industry. It's, we're, this is not a new normal. This is an escalator towards basically a hellish planet that we're leaving, uh, not just for young people and kids, but increasingly for ourselves. And people are dying more and more from climate-related catastrophes today. And uh, you know what really frightens me is that there are some thresholds, for example, example deadly humid heat, which we're approaching, right? And, and we're just going to go through those thresholds. It's, it's, I think it's going to feel like there's not a lot of deaths from heat waves until suddenly in a matter of a few years, there, there are huge heat waves with millions of people dying, uh, causing blackouts and, and mass death. And we're going to wonder, how did this happen so fast? You know, Peter Kalmus, um, NASA's massive new budget-busting multi-billion-dollar moon rocket has just been delayed again, this time, ironically, because of Hurricane Ian's approach. Can you talk about climate change and hurricanes? I mean, I was watching the National Weather Service, one of the top guys there yesterday, saying, I, want, I don't want to talk about climate change right now. Yeah, no, um, there's a pretty clear link. I think your earlier guests did a great job talking about it. I mean, uh, 90, more than 90 percent, around 93 percent of the excess energy that's coming into the planet uh, relative to what's going out because of increasing uh, greenhouse gases, mainly carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, is going into the ocean. And that excess heat in the ocean is a major power for, uh, it's the, the engine for hurricanes. And the warmer atmosphere uh, from Clausius Clapeyron, so uh, warmer air just holds more water vapor, it's basic physics, and that's leading to uh, increased uh, rainfall, increased flooding. And then, of course, you have the higher sea level that Bill McKibben was talking about, which uh, increases damage from storm surges. So all of this together uh, means we are going to expect uh, more and more damage from hurricanes in the future. And again, that's just one climate impact that we're seeing from global heating. You take all of these together and it's just like uh, taking gut punch after gut punch, uh, you know, for, to our civilization. You, you push against a wall and every day you increase the force against that wall, eventually the wall is going to collapse. I mean, it, ca it can't help it. So that's what really worries me. It's like, this isn't a new normal. This is a trend. And every year things are getting worse. So we have to end the fossil fuel industry and we have to do it in an equitable way, both, both domestically and internationally. Uh 
And Peter, uh, I didn't I didn't get the uh, your response to the second part of my question earlier about the response, both yeah. by your colleagues in NASA and also your supervisors uh, to your activism. Yes. So so far, it has been positive. Um, I was in jail for about eight hours after that action. And then the next morning I had a voicemail on my phone just uh, confirming that I had done that action on my own time. And, and I did. I took a vacation day. That was the only only formal contact I had from NASA about that. Um, I was quite worried that I might get fired for that action. Um, since then, many of my colleagues have come up to me privately and thanked me and expressed gratitude for what I've done. And I would um, uh, call to them to, to start doing similar actions because you know, our careers are one thing, but um, our kids, our young people, irreversible damage to the only place in the universe we know that has life, that's quite something else. I mean, that really transcends our careers. And this, this is the time to take a stand. I mean, uh, getting that dirty deal out of Washington, at least temporarily, I, 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 I think that government officials who want to expand fossil fuels and the fossil fuel industry are starting to routinely underestimate the climate movement. And this is the time to make that movement stronger. Grassroots action, I think, is the only thing that's going to turn this around because the rich people in charge, they're, they're not going to change things just because we politely ask them. Peter Kalmus, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Climate activists, NASA climate scientists at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, again speaking uh, in his own personal capacity. One of his last tweets ended with the hashtag don't look up, referring to that Hollywood blockbuster movie about scientists who try to warn the world that a comet is on a direct collision course with the Earth. The film of of course, an allegory for humanity's failure to address the climate crisis. And I can't help noticing how much Leonardo DiCaprio looks like you. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. Uh, next up, Slate's Dahlia Lithwick on her new book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law and the Battle to Save America. Back in 30 seconds. Dreamer by the Comet is Coming. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. On Monday, the Supreme Court will begin a new term. This comes as fallout continues to grow from the court overturning Roe v. Wade in June. Since then, at least 14 states have imposed bans on abortion. We're spending the rest of the hour with Dahlia Lithwick, who covers the courts and law for Slate, hosts the podcast Amicus. Her new book is just out. Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. So, Dahlia, if you can talk about—I well, mean, we're seeing state after state ban abortion. The latest is Arizona, unless something happened this morning. Um, but you actually are holding out hope by documenting a resistance movement of women all over this country who are fighting back. Lay out, Lady Justice. Uh, so first of all, thanks for having me, Amy. Um, I think that I would say that it's really easy to look at everything that's happened in this country through the lens of just politics. 
And if you look at, for instance, what's happening in Iran, that's a political problem. But we have legal power. We have massive legal power. And the book sort of starts at the beginning of the Trump administration with one massive win after another that don't always get recognized. And so what I want kind of I think what I wanted to do was say, let's look at this through the lens of the courts and the law. Let's look at it through the lens of all of the victories that we don't always celebrate that happened both in the Trump era and after. And let's lash ourselves to the power of the justice system, which stipulated uh, it's worrisome right now, but it's not nothing. Well, you profile uh, many women in the book. Or you begin with uh, Sally Yates, who's uh, uh, forgotten by most people already. But she was the acting attorney general uh, and agreed to stay on as interim head of the Justice Department after Trump was inaugurated. She refused to sign off on his travel ban and was sent packing. Uh, that's right, Juan. I mean, the book starts with Sally Yates, both because she stood for the rule of law. She stood up for the Justice Department. She refused to put the imprimatur of the Justice Department on the travel ban or to defend it. She thought it was lawless. She thought it was uh, full of religious animus against Muslims. And uh, she really just said no. And she was the first of many, many lawyers, I think, who refused to bend the law to Trump's will. And so I, the book starts with Sally Yates, and it arcs toward people like Vanita Gupta, who was the head of the leadership conference, and ends on Stacey Abrams in Georgia, who at that point wasn't just using court cases, was really using a massive amalgam of women, largely women of color, to get out the vote, to register voters, to challenge uh, vote suppression laws. In a sense, I think the book arcs from the one lone hero that is Sally Yates, who needs to be held up and celebrated, and lands on everyday women just going out there. We saw it in Michigan uh, a few weeks ago, getting a, a ballot initiative on the ballot uh, to protect abortion rights. So I think I want to make the claim that every single woman and every single ally of people who are worried about women's rights can do this. It doesn't have to be Sally Yates. It doesn't have to be at the Justice Department, but it has to happen really soon. And, you know, you talk about Sally Yates because, well, you make the point that many people after the Trump administration are writing books. They're talking about how they disagreed with him, though they stayed. Yates did something different when, to her shock, she gets this text from whatever, like many people do, from The New York Times or whatever, that Trump is imposing a Muslim ban so early on in his administration. What did she do as acting attorney general? I, I mean, she just very quickly, first of all, she had been uh, in the White House uh, that day. Nobody told her the Muslim ban was coming. Nobody vetted it through the Justice Department or through many other cabinet agencies that should have had a look at it. She gets it in her car as she's going to the airport, the way the rest of us found out about the Muslim ban. And she essentially scrambled a team of her highest lawyers at DOJ, and they workshopped over the weekend whether they could defend it. And then she essentially gave a statement saying, I cannot in good conscience uh, send my lawyers out into court representing the Department of Justice, which is meant to be independent from uh, the president and defend this. And you're right. She was summarily fired. She knew she would be. And you're also right, Amy. I think it's an important point. 
there should have been hundreds of Sally Yates's. There should have been people quitting their jobs rather than enforcing, you know, the the um, migrant abortion uh, uh, seekers who were not al- allowed to get abortions rather than enforcing family separation. A lot of people quit quietly. And a lot of people, as you said, wrote books. To me, Sally Yates was kind of the high water mark of somebody who publicly just said no. So you also profile Polly Murray, uh, who is not known by many, hugely influential. I mean, from Thurgood Marshall to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they talked about her being seminal for civil rights law. She died way before Trump, or I'd say at this point they would have been they. Uh, this is a clip from the recent documentary, My Name is Polly Murray, featuring never-before-seen footage and audio recordings of Polly Murray in their own words. Can I take some uh, close-ups you without your mm-hmm. Lie down. Sit down. Lie down. Lie down. He has to be in everything. My name is Polly Murray, and my field of concentration has been human rights. My whole personal history has been a struggle to meet standards of excellence in a society which has been dominated by the ideas that blacks were inherently inferior to whites and women were inherently inferior to men. A clip from My Name is Polly Murray, directed by Julie Cohen and Betsy West. Dahlia Lithwick, why you feel sh- uh, that Polly Murray was so critical to, uh, to cover in your book? It was so important for me, Amy, to start with Polly Murray for exactly the reasons you said. Both Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were open about the fact that they stood on the shoulders of Polly Murray. And Polly Murray, uh, as you just saw, was not just sort of black and had doors closed their entire life because of it, a woman and had doors closed her entire life because of it, uh, but also uh, was very, very strongly of the view uh, that she was a woman, tra- uh, a man trapped in a woman's body before there was language for that or any cultural understanding of that. And the reason I'm obsessed with Polly Murray and folks should run out and see the documentary is because in some ways this book is not just a meditation on these astonishing women lawyers who I think uh, saved the republic and continue to do so, but because it's a meditation on who gets famous and who gets credit. And it's very, very much a story of people who can toil away in the vineyards for decades. Polly Murray wrote what became the Bible of desegregation for Thurgood Marshall, Polly Murray wrote what became the spine of Brown v. Board, never got credit. Polly Murray wrote what became the sort of central theory of gender equality that Ruth Bader Ginsburg used. At least Justice Ginsburg then, uh, um, as an attorney, uh, credited Murray's work. But with almost no credit, no recognition, did so much to kind of out of the rock face of constitutional history, claw what we think of as modern equality, both for race and gender. And I wanted the book to start with Polly Murray as a way of saying that the hagiography, the sort of love for the tote bags and the memes for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the belief that only Ruth Bader Ginsburg could save us, is so wrongheaded because there's a lot of people who don't get famous, who work for decades and don't get credit 
they're the people I think we should be lifting up. And so for me, the book starts with Polly Murray as a meditation on this great man theory of justice that Bob Mueller's going to save us and Adam Schiff is going to save us. I just disagree. I think we're going to save us. And it requires looking around at the Polly Murrays all around us. And could you talk about the chap the chapter you wrote on uh, Judge uh, Alex Kaczynski and Leah Littman, a law professor at the University of California, Irvine, and others who spoke out ab- uh, about Kaczynski's alleged sexual harassment uh, uh, at the time when he was on the powerful Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals? Yeah, this was a very painful chapter to write, Juan, but it was important to me if I was covering the Trump era to also talk about Me Too and the judiciary. And that obviously swept in not just Judge Kaczynski, but also Judge Brett Kavanaugh and allegations about him. And this was just one of those stories where, because I had clerked on the Ninth Circuit Appeals Court, I knew uh, that it had been an open secret on that court that Alex Kaczynski, for a time the chief judge, a brilliant visionary writer and thinker about the law, but it was an open secret how he treated his law clerks and young women, that he showed his clerks porn, that he said inappropriate things. And this went on for decades and nobody did anything about it. And in 2017, finally, a few women came forward and they said, we've kept this secret long enough. One of them was Heidi Bond. One of them was Emily Murphy. Eventually, Leah Lippman, uh, as you said, uh, came forward and said she had also um, faced uh, inappropriate behavior and comments from him. And it's a chapter in which I talk about the fact that I had, A, seen the uh, inappropriate behavior myself when I was a clerk, B, kept that secret for decades. And see that I really used it as a launch pad to think about complicity, what it means, not just that the federal judiciary did nothing for decades, uh, but that all of us kept the secret because Judge Kaczynski was a feeder judge. If you clerk for him, you ended up at the Supreme Court. And so I wanted that chapter to stand for the proposition that all of us, all of us, including uh, people in the press like myself who kept that secret for decades, Uh, are really part of the problem here. And we have to ask ourselves why we're willing to subordinate the truth to having access to power. And you mentioned Justice Brett Kavanaugh. You also wrote about uh, Christine Blasey Ford, who had accused him of inappropriate behavior and also Anita Hill. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to have the center of the book be some reflections on Me Too, on the ways that it worked, on the ways that it didn't work, uh, on the ways in which it is substituted for having meaningful investigations and due process. And so I really wanted to think about Christine Blasey Ford as an avatar for the proposition that people believed her. I was in the room when she testified. Uh, I don't think anyone in the room thought she was lying. But nevertheless, Judge Kavanaugh was elevated to the Supreme Court and went on uh, this spring to be a vote to overturn Roe. And so I think we disserved uh, both Dr. Ford, who took, I think, a huge risk. And I think we served Judge Kavanaugh by not having any meaningful investigation. And so what was the point of all of that other than, I think, to have this kind of public forum that was not a formal legal process and then step over Dr. Ford and say, oh, well, bygones. And now we are, you know, locked into a Supreme Court probably for decades that will be disrespectful of women's rights. We just have a minute, but you also profiled Stacey Abrams and Roberta Kaplan. Why? 
Uh, again, I wanted to have a black woman, a white woman, somebody who was at a big law firm, somebody who was an organizer. I think I just want every young person in the country who's going to law school to see something of themselves in one or another of these heroes. And Roberta Kaplan, people may not know, the attorney who took on the KKK, the far right in Charlottesville, where you lived for so many years. In fact, you were pivotal to her coming down here and suing them. Robbie Kaplan is an example of somebody who filed a lawsuit in 2017 that didn't go to trial until 2021, but got a massive $26 million judgment against white supremacists and Nazis in Charlottesville. It's another for me story about how the law is slow and takes a long time. But at its best, it really can make us all freer and safer and restore dignity to those who've been harmed. Dahlia Lithwick, we thank you so much for being with us, covering the courts and the law for Slate, hosting the podcast Amicus. Her new book is just out. It's called Lady Justice, Women, the Law and the Battle to Save America. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for two full-time jobs, an associate digital editor, as well as a people and culture manager. You can learn more at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! Producers Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Gesdem, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Afrina Nadura. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.